Teaching ELL students is a privilege and a joy. Is it easy? No way. But with the right support, you can feel empowered to tackle each day with ease and confidence. I'm your host, Beth Fauche, founder of Inspiring Young Learners. With over 10 years of teaching both nationally and internationally, I know what it takes to ensure that your ELL students have what they need to thrive today, tomorrow, and for life. I'm on a mission to empower you to equip your English language learners. Welcome to Equipping ELLs. Let's get to today's episode. Hey there, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Equipping ELLs podcast. I hope that your 2024 is off to an amazing start, and I hope that you are remembering my challenge to you at the beginning of this year, our one word, and that is advocate. You are an incredible advocate for your ELL students, and I want to encourage you through this podcast on different ways that you can really speak up, speak out, and do what's best for your students. In today's episode, we are going to be taking a look at the history of bilingual education. And that might sound a little boring, like, okay, come on, is this a history lesson? But I'm telling you, I was going and doing tons of research for this episode, and it is really fascinating to see when we actually started having bilingual education, all the different things that have happened, the shifts that have happened in our education, and to see our history so that we can make decisions about how we can make change moving forward. Because as educators, and policymakers. One of our really important goals, in my opinion, when we're working with our English language learners is nurturing bilingualism. We want to make it clear that this journey that they are on is not just about learning English. It's about valuing the incredible gift of their native language, their culture, all while embracing a new one. And so, That really should be a heart of ours is even if you don't speak their language, even if you don't have the knowledge or the support or you're just unfamiliar with, you know, how do I help the student keep their native language? That is something that should be a goal of ours of not it just being about learning English, but really about supporting the student to become bilingual or trilingual. Some students know four or five languages. It's truly incredible what they can do. Now, this is not a new journey. It's a path that has been evolving for centuries. And it's really a lot of times you'll see as we look through these decisions, it's so connected to the political landscape of its time. So it's really just you'll see the shifts happen throughout these different decades that we're going to hit on in a second. But I guess the big takeaway here is Even in the years, in 70 years since really bilingual education came into the U.S., they're still trying to figure out what is best. They're still trying to figure out how can we get more funding. They're still trying to figure out, you know, what are we seeing that really gives our students success? So all that to say, if you're feeling like, what is going on? Why can't we get more support or funding? I kind of came away with feeling like, you know what? Everyone's feeling that same way. There's just a lot of broken things, a lot of money tied up in things that could be used better. But at the end of the day, you are the one that's impacting your students. And so what can you do 
that is going to make a change in their lives. And that's what I want to hit on at the end here. So in more recent years, we have seen more of a a shift, a push of supporting bilingualism in our students. And I think that's really great that it's moving from that English only to, you know, really supporting our students with their native language. But I know that sometimes this seems really difficult as the teacher to know what to do, to know how to do this. When is it appropriate to use their native language? When is it not? What if I don't speak their native language? All of those questions, if you've had them, I have had them too. So this episode and the next couple episodes, we are going to be tackling and talking about all things bilingualism in hopes to give you the knowledge, support, and practical steps to take so that you can support bilingualism even if you don't speak your student's native language and you can feel confident and excited about what you're doing with them, knowing that it's helping them, but also not taking away from your job of teaching them English. So let's go back in time And take a look at the country's climate, the culture, what has happened in the U.S. in education when it comes to bilingual education. Now, this really surprised me as I was doing some research, and I will share the links to some different articles so you can see where I'm getting a lot of this information. But what surprised me is I had always learned that, you know, in 1968, that's when bilingual education really came into the U.S. But as we look back in history... It really is a rich and complex history because it dates back to 1839. That's right. In 1839, Ohio was the first state to pass a bilingual education law, and they permitted German-English instruction. This expanded with states like Louisiana and the New Mexico Territory, and they, you know, adopting similar laws for French and Spanish. And by the end of the 19th century, bilingual instruction was prevalent in so many different languages like Norwegian, Italian, Polish, Czech, and Cherokee. I had no idea about this, even though I have I took classes on this, but I was really fascinated that this really dates back to 1839. Now, once World War I hit the scene, that became a significant shift in bilingual education. So there was a lot of rising concerns, you know, over loyalty. American loyalty. And so a lot of the states enacted an English-only instruction law. And their real desire was kind of to, you know, Americanize those non-English speakers. So this, we saw a drastic dismantling of bilingual education. And this really persisted until the mid-20th century. So, you know, we began 1839, where there was a lot of bilingual programs. They saw the value, the benefit of keeping those students' native language. And then we have a shift after World War I, where it really shifts into this English-only instruction. So then I'm sure if you're familiar, if you've taken classes on this, you're familiar with the Bilingual Education Act of 1968. And this was really now a time when, you know, civil rights. Um, We're at civil rights activism. We have growing immigration. And this really marked a, a pivotal resurgence of the bilingual education movement. This Bilingual Education Act of 1968 provided federal funding to encourage native language instruction in schools. Now, there was also a huge Supreme Court decision that happened in 1974 called the Law v. Nichols Supreme Court Decision. This happened on January 21st, 1974. And it was ruled nine to zero in the Supreme Court that under the Civil Rights Act of 1964, 
A California school district receiving federal funds must provide non-English speaking students with instruction in the English language to ensure that they receive an equal education. So this was huge. This was a huge turn of events for our ELL students to receive equal education, to receive what they needed. Now, from there, we had the 1974 reauthorization of the Bilingual Education Act. And when this started in 1968, their purpose was to encourage native language instruction in school. So they wanted to help students become bilingual. But what we see is by 1974, they start to shift their verbiage a little bit. So now all of a sudden, the policymakers, they were defining bilingual instruction as transitional, which is a way to say that the ELs really are going to use their first language only as a temporary strategy while moving them toward English-only instruction, which we see a lot of this happening today in today's current educational landscape. So we still have a lot of that transitional, okay, we might, I was at a school where we had transitional bilingual classrooms, and this really also limited the amount of time that they would get that instruction in their native language, which now we move into 1984. And this is another reauthorization of the Bilingual Education Act, which now their verbiage and their language was that their goal was to provide structured English language instruction and to the extent necessary to allow a child to achieve competence in the English language. And at this time in 1984, it also added a limit to the time a student could spend in a bilingual program. So they limited to that for a period of no more than three years. And this is actually what I had when I was teaching in the U.S. in the um, Chicago area schools. We had bilingual education programs, transitional bilingual programs, where the students would start in kindergarten or first grade, full bilingual, full Spanish. And then each year they would, you know, have less and less Spanish. And by third grade, they were full English. And to be completely honest, I did not see it as a very successful program. They were not given enough time to really become fluent in their native language, to be able to read and write well in their native language. And so they were very weak in their native language, and then they were very weak in English. What I observed, you know, these sixth graders who had done this program were really lacking in both their native language and English, and it was a, it was a detriment to them for sure. Now we're moving into 1994, and under the title Improving America's Schools Act, they restored the law's emphasis on bilingual education. Their stance was to give priority to applications which provide for the development of bilingual proficiency both in English and another language for all participating students. So that's A great shift, but then unfortunately, that would be the last time that we see this kind of language supporting bilingualism. By the year 2000, the Bilingual Education Act, which its main role was to provide specific funding to districts that had high needs, that had high populations of ELL students. And so by the year 2000, the Bilingual Education Act had helped 691 school districts and the amount of money given out grew from $7.5 million in 1969 to $162 million by 2000. So their goal at this point was to be very specific on who received funding and to really help those high-needs schools 
because they had high populations of ELs, they received the money from these grants. However, in 2002, these grants stopped because of the No Child Left Behind Act. So what happened in 2002 is they stopped giving these grants to these specific schools that had high populations of EL students. And they chose then to create a new system. They called it a formula grant system, where they gave money to each state based on how many ELs and immigrant children they had. That sounds great. We want all students to receive the support that they need. We want every school to have the teachers and resources and support they need. But what happened was it meant that they were giving way more students that support which really thinned out the budget. So the first year, the government under No Child Left Behind, the government gave more than $660 million just for supporting the ELs. And this amount increased a bit every year. Every year. So, I mean, this is a, a huge amount of money that's being given. But the downside is it covered a lot more EL students across the country. So the problem was because the total money didn't grow as much as the number of Yale students, it really thinned out, like I said, the amount of money that was being spent. So for example, in 2017, the money that each Yale student got was about $147. So this means that a school with 100 Yale students, and I know many of you listening have at least 100, if not more, Yale students, possibly even on your caseload, <laughs> but in your school you're thinking, yeah, 100 EL students, we have that for sure. That means that you would only be getting an extra $15,000 for supporting those students per school year. So you can see that that really isn't enough to make significant improvements like hiring another teacher or you know, getting new resources or having smaller loads of students on your caseload. And so this is really where that shift of wanting to support all students is absolutely so needed. But at the same time, as you know, because you're in this situation right now, you're feeling the pain of not having the funding to be able to really support your students. You're feeling stretched thin and you need more help. How amazing it would be to have another teacher to help you, right? So what should happen? That's the big question, right? Something needs to happen. Because right now, there's no federal mandate for bilingual education or the, the type of support English language learners receive. All that's mandated right now is that the educational programs offer equal opportunities for language education proficiency in children. But we see that the success of these policies have really been limited. Right now, we're seeing that only 68% of English learners graduate from high school compared to 85% of their non-EL peers and of those, just half are enrolling in college. And so this is kind of a somber, sad place where we're at right now in history, but it's also very exciting because we really can create change. And that change might just be happening between you and your students in your classroom. But change can happen. And hopefully, we pray that it makes it to the federal level where they, they do the right thing. They put the money in the right place. They can find that funding and they can help really support this increasing demographic of students that brings an incredible gift into our classrooms. And so that's what we hope. And that's where we hope it goes. 
But what can we do now? I think right now in your classroom, in your school, the biggest shift really continues to be and to see and to support the beauty of bilingualism. We need to see that this is an asset and not a deficit. We need to shift with those teachers who are still saying, we only speak English here. That is not creating a culture where the students can live and operate in two languages. Teaching them English doesn't need to take away from them knowing and learning their native language. And I want to be clear on this. This doesn't mean that you have to now do everything in their native language. Unless you are, and we're going to get to this in a future episode, but I want to be very clear about that because I think sometimes these discussions happen and then we come away as the teacher and thinking like, okay, I need to now translate everything or I need to, you know, try to do things in Spanish or their native language, if you know that language. But that's really not your purpose either if you are not a bilingual teacher, because it depends on what model you're doing. If you're meant to be teaching English, then you should be teaching English. But you can provide and you can find ways to keep their native language strong and really just them knowing that they are able to share things in their native language or that it's looked and seen as a beautiful gift, not something to be afraid or or ashamed of, which is a lot of what I saw when I was teaching in the States was that, you know, those students who spoke Indian at home, they didn't want to share with their peers that their parents speak another language. Those students who, you know, spoke Bulgarian at home, They didn't want to share that with other people. They didn't want to share that part of their life because they felt like they did not, they weren't accepted. They weren't welcomed because they had parents who spoke another language. And that's what the change we need to make first is to show the beautiful cultural heritage within our classroom and the beautiful gift it is to have parents who speak another language, to have a home where you go to and you operate in a different language. It's truly to have your brain be able to do that is so remarkable and something that we should applaud. And so that's the first place we need to to start is to just be creating cultures and schools where that is accepted. That is such a beautiful gift. That's almost the norm that you would want to know another language because that's a superpower. We also need to ask and ask again for more support, for more funding. Do research on your own. There is funding out there. They're continually coming up with new grant opportunities, new ways that you can get funding even just for your classroom. And so try to find those ways that you can take that into your own hands and say, you know what? My students really would benefit from having this. I'm going to see what's out there that I can either get a grant for, I can do a donor's choose, There's so many ways now that you can get the things you need, and it might not have to come from your administration. And there are good things that are happening, like the Seal of Biliteracy. The Seal of Biliteracy is an award given by a school, a school district, or a state in recognition of students who have studied and attained proficiency in two or more languages by high school graduation. And so things like this, where almost all states now in the U.S. I was looking at are, are they do have the seal of biliteracy. So we can see the shift is going, and that's something exciting that we want to get on board with. And we can help do that in our classrooms, in our schools. And just to reiterate what I said at the beginning, 
I just want you to know and realize that the environment you are in is shifting and constantly changing. And in the 70 plus years since bilingual education really entered the U.S., there have been so many shifting ideas on how to best support these students. And just lack of funding is, I think, a huge thing. I think a lot of us know the best ways to support these students, but the budget's not always there. So just know that the environment you're in, it's okay if you feel overwhelmed or or just frustrated by what's happening, but don't stay there. I want you to use that frustration to advocate for what you and your students need. And don't be surprised if you start to see some shifts happening by your advocacy. Small things really can impact your students, your school. So like the old saying goes, a tiny spark can set a great forest on fire. So be that tiny spark. Find those things that you are passionate about that you can really start to see, hey, this is what I meant to do. This is where I meant to show up and support my students and help them to get what they need. And that tiny spark, you, could really make changes in our educational landscape that are so needed. All right, so join me next week as we continue our discussion about promoting bilingualism and how you can do that even when there isn't funding or resources or you don't speak their language. There's a lot of ways that you can be that constant support in your students' lives. We're going to be hitting on that. We're going to be talking more about the superpowers of bilingualism. We're going to be talking about assessing and looking at you know their native language to assess. We have a lot of awesome podcast episodes lined up. So join me next week as we continue this discussion. If you have any questions, you can send me a message on Instagram at equipping ELLs. And I'd love to chat with you and hear more about your journey, where you're at and what you are advocating for this year. Have a great week. And I will be back next week with another episode. Until then, keep equipping your ELLs. Thank you for joining me in today's episode. All links and resources mentioned can be found in the show notes. If you're looking for even more support and done-for-you resources created specifically for the needs of ELLs, head to inspiringyounglearners.com. I'll catch you here next week. Until then, take that next step to keep equipping your ELLs.